The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers at their business. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all with the sheep and oxen out of the temple. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign have you to show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a famous icon called the Sinai Pentocrator. It's an icon of Christ, and Pentocrator translates as all-powerful or almighty. It's the term used to translate the Old Testament name of God, the Lord of hosts, Sabaoth, which is God's battle name. And if you've seen this particular icon, you know that it is not necessarily comforting. Christ is not smiling. He actually looks rather stern. He's holding a book of the Gospels and he's raising his hand to teach. What's fascinating about this icon is that the face of Christ is very asymmetrical, intentionally so. And if you go online, you can actually see images of, images of it cut in half and then mirrored side by side to each other. And so you can see just how different each side of this icon is, even in his eyes. One is looking down, one is looking more directly at you and a bit upward. And what the iconographer wanted to convey in this icon is that the two sides of his face are meant to reveal his two natures, that Christ is fully God and fully man, that he is both condescending, not that not in the way that we use that term, but he, he, he stoops down to us and he's humble and he reaches down into the very depths of our sinful state to bring us life. And he is at the same time all-powerful, the perfect creator of all that exists. He is the Lord who brought his people out of Egypt with a strong hand and a mighty arm. And he is the one by whom all people will be judged. 
In our gospel lesson this evening, we are met with what seems, anyway, to be a very different kind of Jesus than we talked about last week. A fiery-eyed Jesus comes through with an anger that seems to us out of control as he goes about purifying the temple. What we have to understand in this scene, as with most scenes that the evangelists recorded for us in their gospel accounts, is that Jesus is acting deliberately. Right? He's not being swept up in the moment and taken off guard. He's acting deliberately in concert with the Spirit in a way that is richly symbolic. Even the way that St. John goes about recording this story for us is designed to get us to encounter the crucified and risen Christ. The other gospel writers put this story toward the end of Jesus' ministry when he enters Jerusalem on his way to crucifixion. But John places it at the beginning for multiple theological reasons. One is that he wants us to see Christ's entire ministry as one of cleansing temple worship, a ministry that points entirely to the sign that Christ offers, the sign of Jonah, which is three days in the belly of a fish, which is to say the sign of the destruction and resurrection of his body, which is the temple. What's even more interesting, though, is that St. John places this story of Christ cleansing the temple between two striking stories. It comes right on the heels of the wedding at Cana, where Jesus has just shown himself to be the celebrant in chief, turning water into wine at a wedding feast. And then right after this story that we have for tonight, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, where he tells this teacher of the law that rebirth is required for all who would take part in God's kingdom, and that that rebirth comes through water and the Spirit. And what is figured for us in these stories is the Eucharist, the wedding at Cana, and baptism. And directly between them is this story of Jesus completely reorienting temple worship by declaring His body to be the temple. The temple was the place where time and eternity intersected, the place where God's glory dwelled. The temple was designed as a microcosm, a little miniature version of the universe with the Holy of Holies behind the curtain of the firmament reflecting the eternal presence of God's heaven similar to a text we looked at several weeks ago when Jesus tells his disciples that he is essentially Jacob's ladder, the gate between heaven and earth. And at the end of our lesson, St. John tells us that after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said about his body being the temple that he would raise, build back up in three days. And then we're told they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is a phenomenon that happens multiple times throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts. And at first glance, it almost seems like a throwaway line or a way of describing how dim-witted the disciples are. But it's actually trying to get us to recognize a deep theological reality. Christ reveals himself to us as the crucified and risen one. It is the spirit of the crucified and risen Christ that opens our eyes to see clearly the revelation of God himself in victory 
upon the cross. And it is this revelation, this divine light refracted through the cross and the empty tomb that is to give light and life to us as the scriptures give form to our life together. And this is why the crucified Christ leads us into worship and back out into the world every time we come here. It's the reason we celebrate communion every week, not as an add-on to our life together, but as the very center of our life, because it is participating in the Eucharist feast together that we are being incorporated into the temple, the mystical body of Christ, the dwelling place of God on earth where time and eternity meet. It's right here in our sacramental participation in Christ that serves as a hinge in our understanding of the law. St. Paul has been making his case for the gospel message in Romans. He's done so by demonstrating that an efficacious righteousness, meaning a righteousness that actually gets the job done, doesn't come through keeping the Mosaic law, but rather comes by way of participation in Christ through faith, repentance, and baptism. And St. Paul says that the law serves to highlight our sin, our inability to keep it, and that by God's grace, we have died to the law in the body of Jesus Christ. But then, as if Paul is actually pretty smart, he anticipates the way that our self-justification can sort of move its way around. Our self-justification is a shapeshifter. If you pin it in a corner, it's just going to scoot out and find another way to get you to justify yourself. As if all of a sudden we're like, well, the law can't save us, so it must be terrible, right? Boo for the law. But that's like trying to use a chainsaw as a lawnmower and then getting upset at the chainsaw when it doesn't cut your lawn correctly. The law of the Lord is good and beautiful, as our psalm told us. It gives joy to the heart, light to the eyes, and it refreshes the soul. But so often it doesn't feel that way, right? And here's where we must return again and again to a basic understanding of the world. Too often we are content to think of sin as just the bad stuff that we do. We have now heard the Ten Commandments read aloud twice this evening. Sin is lying or dishonoring our parents or coveting or dancing just a little bit too close to the lust and anger that can become adultery and murder. But we don't often allow ourselves to realize that those transgressions are the flower of sin, not its root. In fact, this is what is on display for us in the cleansing of the temple. It's a revelation that our sin is rooted in the fact that we don't give God true worship. We were created to priest God's world, to gather up the gifts of his creation and offer them up to him in sacrifice and praise. But in subscribing to the lie of the devil, we forfeited that role and have instead tried to grasp at the world for ourselves. As David Fagerberg says in his beautiful book, Consecrating the World, the fall was the forfeiture of our liturgical career. Right? Liturgy is the, the work of a smaller group done on behalf of the larger group. And he says that in the fall, we forfeited our liturgical career. And then he goes on, when Lucifer willed to take glory to himself, Fagerberg says, he was rebelling against his liturgical status. 
When Lucifer decided to get glory for himself, he's rebelling against his liturgical status. Fagerberg tells us, sin is idolatrous from the start. It is failure to give right adoration, to rightly glorify, to worship righteously. And what the gospel message tells us is that Christ alone offers this true worship to the Father. He alone refused to capitulate to the misguided human project of self-worship, of turning the world into an end in itself rather than as a means to encounter God. Why did Jesus die on the cross? One answer is given in John's quotation of the psalmist. Zeal for his father's house consumed him. His desire for true worship was so pure and so offensive to us poor creatures gone so far off the rails that we killed him for it. But there's a catch here. And it's one that our brothers and sisters in the Orthodox Church capture perfectly in their Eucharist prayer. At its core, it says, there's this little line, in the night in which he was given up, betrayed, right? In the night in which he was given up, or rather, gave himself up for the life of the world, he took bread. It's not just that our anger toward him for his pure worship sought to kill him. It's that his true worship of the Father included giving himself up for the life of the world. And we now enter into that self-giving through the waters of baptism and are carried forth into the new life by taking up our cross. This is what we mean when we say that we are living our lives hidden with Christ in God. David Fagerberg is a better writer than I will ever be, so I'm going to give him the last line. It's, it's a long quote, but it's worth it. He says, The first Adam did not have equality with God, but grasped at it. The second Adam did have equality with God, but emptied himself into only one desire, to obey the Father, to love the Father, to be near the Father. His whole thought, his whole delight was in the thought, in the will, in the being of his Father. The joy of the Lord's life, that which made it life to him, was the Father. Of him he was always thinking. To him he was always turning. I suppose most men have some thought of pleasure or satisfaction or strength to which they turn when action pauses. Life becomes for a moment still, and the wheel sleeps on its own swiftness. With Jesus, it needed no pause of action, no rush of renewed consciousness to send him home. His thought was ever and always his Father. To its home, in the heart of the Father, his heart ever turned. That was his treasure house, the jewel of his mind, the mystery of his gladness, claiming all degrees and shades of delight from peace and calmest content to ecstasy. His life was hidden in God. Amen.